I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of February 6, 2017. On this week's show, we'll talk about the Patriots' 25-point comeback to beat the Falcons in Super Bowl 51, which proved once and for all that the Golden State Warriors blew a 3-1 lead in the NBA Finals. Charlie Pierce, who wrote a book about Tom Brady, will join us to talk about what we know about the guy and what we should think about the guy. And Spencer Hall of SB Nation will be here to help us understand the Atlantaness of the situation and whether that game was abominable for Falcons fans or more like horrible, disgusting, distasteful. Joining me in Washington, D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. With us from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, and the host of a Super Bowl party that has a good flow. Yeah. Especially for a game this year where you could really tune out for a couple quarters, watch mm-hmm. halftime, and then punker down at exactly the point most of the guests leave. You have to time <laughs> this for the East Coast. This is the, this is the way. My guess. This, was, this Super Bowl yeah. was perfectly suited to the normal uh, ebbs and flows of an East Coast party. Yeah, or the circadian rhythms of a, of a, of a classic sports event. My guests mm-hmm. left when it was 28 to 3. When did your guests start to leave? There was a trickle out. Look, the last four guests left as it went into overtime. Like, you know what? I don't really like Super Bowls or football that much. <laughs> In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll compare the Patriots win to the Cavaliers win in the NBA Finals and the Cubs World Series win and determine once and for all something. We'll just have a conversation. <laughs> we won't determine anything. Uh, join Slate Plus for $49 a year. If, if you want to join Slate Plus for us to determine things, you're joining the wrong membership programs. If you want a good conversation about sports, maybe other things, you'll get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up before this offer goes away at slate.com slash hangup plus. 
So I haven't really prepared any uh, any patter here. Patriots won thirty four to twenty eight in overtime. They were up twenty eight to three when Stefan's uh, guests started leaving. The various win probability widgets had them at about ninety nine percent. We can talk about the yeah, widgets. Great year in a for bit. widgets, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> all the all the win probabilities. Yeah, widgets struggled, um, but I'm pro widget. We'll get to that. in Brexit a second. had it closest of all the widgets, I think. So, do you see this, Stefan? Does the sports fan see this as more of a Patriots victory, a validation of a great franchise, a great quarterback, and a great coach, or is just the like absolute? bonkersness of this game sort of defy all logic and wisdom and prescription about the meaning of anything. Well, let's be clear. First and foremost, this was a great defeat for Roger Goodell. And I think that's what we really need to focus on in the aftermath of this game. Fulsome booing. Fulsome. Yes. Lusty, I would say. Yeah. Lusty booing. Um, this was a this was a, a, a reward for watching sports and watching a lot of shitty games. Super Bowls have been pretty great for the last ten to fifteen years. Um, this was exceptional. And look, I'm not a New England fan. I'm not a Tom Brady fan or a Bill Belichick fan. Um, but this was exceptional to watch. Um, this was this this combined not just the greatness of a of a player and a coach and a team, but some incredible fuck-ups by the other side. And I think it is true that in order to have great moments in sports, very often you need both sides to cooperate. It takes a village to burn down that village. Correct. (laughs) Uh, Thoughts, Mike Pesca? You know, before the game, um, like most games, I would have thought and told anyone who cared to listen that a key to the game is the pass rush of each team, uh, especially how much pressure can be put on Brady. And that was true. That was true throughout the game. And I would have said, you know, if Brady had time to throw and not someone in front of him, doesn't like to be flushed from the pocket, especially hates to have someone up the middle. And there was a big question if the uh, Falcons could generate that. I'll say it, they got pressure. And man, did they. Okay, so... Uh, I would have said that that is certainly a key to a game. Now, if you had said to me, all right, here's the situation. They will get in Brady's face, but then they'll stop getting in Brady's face. But that will occur with about 19 minutes left in the game. And he'll be down by 25 at that point. I would have said, well, that's nice. He could maybe have a couple of carve up the defense drives, but have no way to come back. So this truism about the game or this truth about the game that actually turned out to be true in that microcosm or in the intensified um, concentrate. Yes, yes, it was it was uh, the 19 minutes of uh, of Patriots magic from concentrate. It was just unbelievably it was astounding. And the other thing, the other thing I'd say is that I, I have I've been trying to think a lot about this, you know. So so the Patriots had 93 offensive plays, 99 snaps, and it is impossible to have any sort of defense uh, after, I don't know, 80-something plays. And so after you have 82 to plays, that's the, yeah, impossib- it was 82, 82, the impossibility 81. threshold. Yeah. 83, <gasps> 83 at altitude. No, 80, 81 yeah, at, about, at altitude. 
At about play 86, that's when three defenders converge to prop a ball up so Julian Edelman can get it. But so obviously, say, at the end of the first half, around the pick six that seemed to seal the game, you wouldn't say, well, the Patriots kind of got lucky because it was a long drive and then a quick play and then another long drive. And there's no way that whatever, the 15 to 20 plays around that pick six um, could have overcome the fact that it was a 10 to 14 point swing, but still late in the game, it seemed to, it, it's, it's an, it was an unbelievable, even at halftime, the, the uh, Falcons had more points than they had plays and they seemed to be doing well. So that's another football truth that if you say, you know, one team's going to have to defend 93 plays, I'd say, well, they're going to look like Baylor's defense. But then you say, ah, but that team will be down 25. I'd say, okay, at that point, it's still impossible. So these two things, like uh, like negating the pass rush and having so many plays, are these true things that you don't think they'll be able to condense a victory in in 19 minutes. And that was the amazing thing that they did. Yeah, I mean, in the piece that I wrote, I talked about all the different coin flips that the Falcons had to lose to lose the game. But you make a, a fair point, which is that the results of those coin flips are correlated. There is the kind of snowball effect at the end of the game where I think the more things go wrong, the more likely future things are to go wrong. And I think the biggest factor there is the Falcons is getting increasingly tired on defense, in part because the Falcons' offense was so good in the early part, point of the game that they efficient. just weren't they staying. Were really efficient. They weren't staying on the field. But there is... Certainly something to be said for having a ball control type offense when there's an imperative to run out the clock and keep the ball out of the hands of the opposing quarterback. And the play that, you know, I wrote about it and that just stuck out to me as one of the most amazing, skillful plays that you will ever see in any sport was that Julio Jones catch. Um, Which we forgot about three minutes later because well, of the Julian Edelman catch. Yeah. But, but the, it was—I mean—it was the kind of thing Nate Jackson was talking about when he was on the show most recently. Just how how beautiful and balletic and skillful doing that is. And there was just no luck involved in that play at all. Just pass and catch. The the pass being exactly on point, and the way that he leaped and stretched his arms over the defender. And the toe tap, like, doesn't even do it justice because his, like, feet were, like, flying in at different angles, like, at, at different heights. And at that point, the Falcons were up eight and there were about four minutes to go. And they had a f- first down deep in Patriots territory. And it seemed like everything could go wrong for them and they could still win because they have this amazing – guy and this amazing quarterback and then they managed to like lose all this yardage and not even get a portion some blame there they were on the 20 they were on the 22 yard line blame 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 (laughs) they were like what there was like under four minutes to go they're on the patriots 22 yard line that's a 40 yard field goal if they run it into the line three times and don't gain a single yard they have a kicker matt bryant who was 31 for 32 inside the 50 all year. And as Aaron Schatz pointed out to me on Twitter, Bryant was also 90 plus percent on field goals to take the lead or tie a game in the final two minutes in his career, which is like second best in the NFL since 2000. And instead of doing that. That analysis is bullshit. There is like a fallacy there, though, in 
ex post facto saying they should have just tried for a field goal because if you get the if you get a field goal there you're up by 11 with more than 2 minutes to go in the best case scenario and the best case scenario on the other side you just run out the clock and win the game and the other team doesn't get the ball back you also remember that there was a bad call on this. Mike Prayer said it was a bad call. But earlier in the game, the Patriots leaped over the line and just basically tackled the, mm-hmm. the holder before he could even get the kickoff. So there's mm-hmm. an example from the exact same game. And, you know, if he had tried to kick it, they would have probably blocked it and run it back I'm for a touchdown. I'm not suggesting that he should have taken three knees and kicked a field goal. I'm suggesting that you run the ball three times. And if you get 10 yards and you churn off another minute and a half minimum off the clock and you attempt a field goal, you're doing it from, you know, at least 10 yards or eight, nine yards closer. If you get zero yards, the ball is on the... The Patriots get the ball on the 30, and they still have to go 70 yards with two minutes to go. Look, it's plausible, but it's certainly better than ending up 23 yards behind the line of scrimmage. Let's imagine what might happen in those plays. Oh, fumble. Oh, the Patriots running back for touchdown. Oh, uh, a holding penalty. Oh, they just got pushed back. I can't believe they didn't throw. Julio Jones is the best receiver in football. Which plays eliminates the chances of you going up 11 with two minutes to go in the game? That's all that should have mattered at that point. I, well, what about your most hated word from Sportscaster? But this came from Steve Young, who's in a position to know you simply can't take that sack. What about what about the sure. whole calculation also relying on the fact that rather than handing it off, uh, I'll rely on Matt Ryan not to make the mistake, the you know very hard play to throw it away, but mm-hmm. the mistake that he made. And then Devonta Freeman, the, the line to he, hold. He's a really yeah. good running back. Well, Freeman had missed a block on the probably the biggest play of the game, yep. which is the sack on Ryan Deep in Atlanta territory when they were up 16 with nine minutes to go. Which and caused a fumble. That was just a bad play by that dude who had an otherwise great game. There's a lot of uh, little pieces of blame to go around, and I feel like coaches and coaching decisions get too much because – I mean, like Mike says, players have agency. Like this, it wasn't foretold that any of this stuff was going to happen. And throwing the ball for Atlanta this year with that team is an unbelievably high percentage play. And handing the ball off to Devonta Freeman was a pretty high percentage play for the season. So <laughs> I, you know, it seems there's a so point in a they game. They didn't really where... have any bad choices, is what you're saying? No, I'm saying that throwing the ball was a worse choice. Whatever, dude. And they made it. Mike, what did you make of Brady and, um, you know, with the interception that he threw in the first half? Not a great decision. Bad decision. Yeah. And there were just so many different instances where he was just a little bit off on throws to Edelman where it didn't necessarily seem like it was anything the Falcons were doing, although they were getting some good – pressure up the middle with uh, with Jared and whatnot. But it, he wasn't playing, uh, you know, up to a ex- extremely high standard. And then maybe it's the maybe it's the tiredness of the defense. 
Yeah, his receivers had a couple of key drops, and I think it was the pressure. I mean, when Jarrett has those sacks up the middle and a number of other pressures, it is a weird thing about Tom Brady. I can't say he's not the greatest, but if you list the next few guys who have a claim to be the greatest, they are much better with uh, pressure in their face, you know? Even guys who we wouldn't say are who, who are great, you know, Aaron Rodgers is a great quarterback, and Roethlisberger is, you know, a near great, but those guys, part of their greatness is the escapability. Eli Manning on the Terrell catch did something that Brady almost never does. So the fact that he needs this, you know, perfectly uh, gauzy uh, lens, Vaseline on the lens pocket with maybe some uh, patchouli and scented candles in the pocket as he throws, maybe this slightly diminishes how freaking awesome he is. I think it's the game plan, too. It just been good enough to win five Super Bowls. Good enough to win five. Good enough to, you know, good enough to have the lead in the fourth quarter in seven Super Bowls. Good enough, like all the fourth quarter. Didn't have the lead in this Super Bowl. (laughs) All the fourth fourth quarter. quarter. Right, right, right. All the fourth quarter comebacks he orchestrated. The Giants Super Bowl, the last Giants Super Bowl, he absolutely did that. Um, I do think he's the greatest. And I don't, I never resented the Patriots. I mean, I'm supposed to because I'm a Jets fan. So we bought 25 Falcons Cups and 25 Patriots Cups. And I said, this will be democracy. And the P- Falcons Cups went really fast. And I was drinking out of a Patriots Cup all night just because as the host, you want to even things out. But I'm like, <laughs> there's nothing. If my big complaint with the NFL wasn't those cheating Patriots or how I hate uh, their their Trumpism. My biggest complaint was it was a boring season. There was one team that wasn't that. There was one excellent team. There was one team that really every Sunday tried to give me a very good game if their opponent was up to it. And usually they weren't. And for for the last quarter of this one, their opponent wasn't. So that's why I really like I don't know, like, but that's why I more than respect the Patriots. Everyone who hates the Patriots says you got to respect them. I more than respect them. Football's entertainment, and they're the most entertaining. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. According to Yahoo's Dan Wetzel, Tom Brady paced the sideline when the Patriots were down 28 to 3 and told his teammates to make America great again. Actually, he told them to just do your job. If only other quarterbacks had thought of that, maybe they would be as great as five-time Super Bowl champion Tom Brady. Joining us now is a man who wrote a book about Tom Brady. It's called Moving the Chains, Tom Brady and the Pursuit of Everything. He also writes about politics for Esquire and sports for Sports Illustrated. It is Charlie Pierce. Charlie, thanks for being with us. Hey, thank Josh. It's good to be here. What's up? So I'm just curious if your view of Brady has changed in the last decade and how the fact that he had the making make America great again hat in his locker and you know sense has kind of refused to engage on the question of politics if that is surprising to you if that inflects your opinion of the guy as a man no it doesn't surprise me at all i mean he's one of the most public i mean as strange as this may say over the uh, 
given the events of the last couple of years, he's one of the most public conflict averse athletes we have. Uh, you know, and, and frankly, you know, I, I, I find it, you know, a little, I, I just, I just found it a little bit annoying to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, there aren't many people more critical of the current administration than I am. Uh, and I, I, I just want it to, you know, I re- this isn't a stick to sports thing with me. I don't think it's particularly well thought out on his part. Uh, I don't think it's, you know, it, it's going to manifest itself, but this is a guy who stood up on principle against, you know, his own particular authoritarian for two years in the middle of one of the dumbest controversies in the history of American sports. So, you know, there's certainly, you know, principle and substance there. Now, if it's misdirected, then, you know, he's far from the only one. I'm more, I'm more, I'm more concerned that Mitch McConnell won't stand up to, to Donald Trump, perfect, to be perfectly honest with you, than I am that Tom Brady won't. That seems re- like a reasonable take. Well, so yeah, Ian, probably, probably more important for the republic, I would say. Ian O'Connor wrote after the game, everybody was waiting all year for Brady and Bob Kraft to get on stage with Goodell and say, like, fuck you, fuck off, something with fucking it. And, you know, Ian O'Connor writes after the game, love, not rage, fueled Tom Brady's legendary Super Bowl 51 win. And there were, you know, great moments with his family. His mom has been sick. And there were, you know, beautiful photos with everybody together. Do you buy the idea that, it was love and not rage that fueled Brady's success this year in the team Super Bowl victory. I think I think at the very best, I would say they were co-equal motiva- motivators. Uh, Bob Kraft, by the way, came right up to the edge of saying something on TV mm-hmm. when they gave him the trophy, and you know didn't really put like a couple of toes over the line. Uh, oh, I think it was more than a toe or two, Charlie. Think? He said a, l- a lot has transpired in the last yes. two years, and I don't think that needs any explanation. Throwing red meat to the base. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I, I, I think that's, you know, that's what you say on national television after you've won the Super Bowl in such an epic fashion. I'll be very interested to hear what they say on City Hall Plaza tomorrow when there's nothing there but a couple of million Patriots fans. Yeah, that'll be a rally of... Uh, I think I think more than Trumpian proportions. I think you'll see a, a little bit more, uh, a little bit more of the of the hate the, the the hate motivation tomorrow. So as far as the triumvirate atop the Patriots, uh, Kraft's a lifelong Democrat, knows Trump for years, but then again, Trump's basically a lifelong Democrat. So they're friends, but I think that Kraft was friends with him when Trump wasn't the iteration of what he is now. Yeah, I- um, and also being friends with some stupid, some stupid reality star seems to have much lower stakes than the guy has become. Then you have Belichick, his father was in the Navy and venerates the military. So that might be more, you know, uh, and maybe thinks things out more, but I can't quite get what the hell Brady's doing. He's married to an immigrant. It is an immigrant model. So that's just like Trump yeah. and from Northern California. He's never said anything of substance. Like, why is he even flirting with Trump just because the the bosses are? Uh, no, I think, I think, I think the same thing, what you said about, about Kraft holds true for Brady. I mean, they became pals in the fellowship of rich guys before anybody saw this thing coming. And I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't exactly know how it would benefit anyone if, if, you know, I mean, apparently the affection between Kraft and Trump is, is very real. Apparently Trump 
called uh, Kraft while Kraft's wife was ill and then after her death. So, you know, maybe that's just a straight personal thing. Uh, as for Brady, you know, he, he, he enjoys being a, a celebrity more than he lets on, as private a person as he is. And he likes meeting movie stars. He likes meeting famous people. He likes meeting rich people. Now, has, have the political dynamics changed on him under his feet? Absolutely. And I'll be interested to see what, you know, what happens going forward. Charlie, in reading your book, I never got the impression that Brady had much of a political conscience. I mean, you describe him as this incredibly focused, sort of preternaturally organized and, and thoughtful kid, someone who is thinking about how he will be successful in college and beyond. I mean, the one detail I remember is that he took a course in academic organization in the summer before the fresh, before freshman year of high school. Right. Um, that, that this, this isn't someone that seems to be, I mean, I'm not surprised by any of this. I'm surprised by the sort of lack of tact yeah. in dealing with the media. Um, but in terms of his personality, it's kind of who he is. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a guy who thinks a couple of moves ahead. Uh, and I think this has caught him flat footed and I don't think he's used to that. And that's why I think his reaction has been bad to it. You know, I don't think he saw the level of interest in his leaving a hat in his locker uh, coming and he get, I mean, just as he gets occasionally flummoxed by a good pass rush, he gets really flummoxed at things that come at him by surprise and things he can't control or things he hasn't prepared for or things that are, you know, a little bit out of where he feels comfortable. For example, one, I was following around one day at the, at the weekly Wednesday press conference, a guy was there from some Irish newspaper and asked him to, to comment on, you know, his Irish heritage. And I mean, to nine times out of 10, that's a slam dunk for somebody. You know, I met my, my dad told me about my grandparents and blah, blah, blah. And he just said, look, I, I, I can't give you a real good answer to that. I'll have to look into it. And at once I thought, boy, that's kind of, you know, you just blew this guy off. He came all the way from Dublin. But the second thing I said was, this is a guy who's very careful about this stuff. And uh, I don't think he was real careful on this, on this particular topic. And I think, he, I think it, you know, it has cost him a little bit. I don't, think, I don't think it's cost him very much. And I think anybody who thinks it cost him a lot is, is fooling themselves. But, uh, yeah, I do, I, do think this is, I do think the reaction has caught him by surprise a little bit. So from what you know about him, um, you know, they, we were always told that the flake gate and the punishment was a big motivator, but he always seems as motivated. What are the chances you think he'll say, I've done I could do, all I could do and uh, not come back? I, I think he really likes the idea of playing till he's like 40 or 45. I think that's his latest, you know, and considering he's probably going to be, you know, they're probably going to be you know, at the top of the, at the top, around the top of the league, the whole time he was here. I think if the Patriots were sliding into, you know, a couple of seven and nines and six and tens, his attitude might be different. But I think he's, he's also he's, invested in all those like weirdo health. Yeah. I mean, he's, got this, he's got, got this entire health and exercise regimen now that he's dedicated to. So I think he'd like to vindicate that. So I think as long as he, he, he thinks himself healthy enough to do it, I think he's really intrigued now by the idea of playing into his 40s. So how do you square the idea? And we saw it during the postgame when the crowd, which you would have to presume is, is mostly Patriots fans at that point, is just booing Goodell extremely lustily. But that stands in for a larger 
sentiment and, you know, of NFL fandom. So everybody hates Goodell and the Patriots just really stuck it in Goodell's eye. At the same time, nobody likes the Patriots except for Boston fans. You know, there's not this great sense in the world today that justice has been done in the fact that Brady and the Patriots are vindicated and won out. Is that just because, you know, Boston has 37 titles in its history and Atlanta has one and just we're sick of, of Boston? Is that what, what I kind think of it's plays I, here? I, I, I don't know if it's, if, if it's Boston so much as, as it's the Patriots. I mean, uh, you know, this is an incredible run of success that they've had. And nothing, you know, except for the Celtics of the 60s, nothing comes remotely close to it, at least in Boston. But I do think the booing of Goodell was kind of a general NFL fan booing of Goodell. I mean, I think it was what happens to him every year at the draft multiplied by 10. I mean, the man's, you know, the man's, you know, done some things that would alienate the fan base of a lot of teams. And, you know, I don't think he's been a particularly good commissioner. And you don't get very many chances to boo him. And this was a big one. <laughs> Just a great booing opportunity. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The fans are not going to pass up. And that's in spite of, you know, look, look, you can boo Roger Goodell, but for the rest of America, as Josh was saying, booing the Patriots is a pastime now. It is a ritual. This is not a team that has engendered a lot of love elsewhere in the NFL or nationally. We respect the Patriots because they're so damn great. I mean, and I don't maybe think, this I don't is just me, but, but I think it's fun to root against them. Like, I don't may, – maybe this is just me personally. It's kind but, of futile. But I just don't – I just don't hate them, but it's fun to have something to root against. Oh, sure. And they, Absolutely. And, and you put the filigree of politics on top of it. Sure. Uh, but I, I think the way they won the game yesterday – I think that's going to change a few minds. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to root against a team who can do that. I mean, because that was... Strong disagree. Absolutely (laughs) invested in the game in every possible way, including the financial. That was one of the great sporting events you'll ever see. I mean, it's just an extraordinary performance. Uh, The idea that you think that that would make people go to the Patriots side is kind of, kind of charming, charming, but incorrect. <laughs> well, possibly. I mean, I think it would, I think it would soften things a little bit. I would hope it would. I mean, if you can't respect that, you can't respect anything. I think you can respect and hate simultaneously. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. No, I think you're probably behaviors. right. All right, Charlie. So last thought on Brady, you know, you spent time with them. A while ago, is the guy um, who he became on the field, I mean, he was already great, but when you wrote about him, but does it still surprise you what he's managed to do in his career? Yeah. I mean, I think the last couple of years uh, have, have surprised me. I mean, you, you really are supposed to start sliding downhill. And he, and he does have, you know, I, every time I say he's, he, you know, he doesn't have X, Y, and Z that he had before, last night he ran 19 yards for a first down. Uh, I don't know what pliability is, but I think we should all get some because it seems to be working. <laughs> Charlie Pierce writes about uh, Sports Sports Illustrated, writes about politics for Esquire, and he wrote a book about Tom Brady titled Moving the Chains. Charlie, thanks so much. Thanks, guys. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Joining us now to discuss the Atlanta aspects of this uh, Super Bowl conflagration. It's Spencer Hall of SB Nation. Hello, Spencer. Hi, how are you? I'm feeling great. So do you view the Falcons, just so we have like a baseline here, as do, do you, you know, look at their games as more of an anthropological exercise? Or are you deep in the throes of NFL fandom? Oh, no, I've never been deep in the throes of NFL fandom. That seems like a really unfortunate illness to me. <laughs> So what do you make of the way that the Falcons lost this game? There are two ways to think of it. You could say that there's something quintessentially Falcon-esque about it, given this franchise's historic lack of success. Or you could just Ooh, kind of la- laugh at a one-off outlier of historical proportions. Oh, no, this is very much on brand. This is completely on brand. This is exactly how... The Falcons would do it if the Falcons were going to blow, I don't know, just picking a number at random, a 28-3 lead relatively late in a Super Bowl. That's how they would do it because this was a bigger version of the collapse in the NFC Championship game against San Francisco. It's in, in remarkably similar in how it happened, except that last time it was Colin Kaepernick. This time, at least there's the excuse of, well, we were facing Tom Brady on kill mode. And there's that. But this is also how one would do it. You would do it in a manner that was loaded beyond just the framework of, oh, you lost to a historically better team. Nope. You lost to a historically better team in a politically weighted scenario where everyone was counting on you. We all wanted you to win. And then you just you just betrayed everybody. And that's really what makes this super Falcons-esque why though is it Falcons-esque? And I think that's important to 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 dissect. What makes a franchise irrelevant or um or pathetic? Uh why Atlanta? You know, why well, is think, Atlanta different from Jacksonville, say, or 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 Detroit? Well, I, well, one, I think people in Detroit care. And it's different from Jacksonville in the sense that um this is attached to something I think a little more like a city than Jacksonville. Jacksonville's kind of just um, Jacksonville's just kind of a territory, man. You know, like before states, when you just had large swaths on the map that just said like mm, Northwest Territory. That's Jacksonville's just kind of where Jacksonville's supposed to sort of be, right? If you pick out a moment and, and grab something that you think is Jacksonville, it's like Brownie in motion, right? You're like, oh, this random particle of civilizations here. That's that's Jacksonville. Atlanta's it is a swamp. At least the, it is mostly swamp. I'll give you that. It, it is in Pine Barren. Don't forget the, the beautiful Pine Barrens of North Florida. No, I think this makes it particularly Falcons because this franchise exists mostly because uh, Atlanta was, you know, exceeded X in terms of growth. And they said, oh, well, sure, we could we could put a team there. And it was put here with very little imagination or understanding of the market or how things work. There are a lot of college football fans here. And those teams take precedence over pro teams. And there's a real good reason for this, by the way. It's not because we're yokels. There may be elements of that. But 
it's because there weren't pro teams here forever. You want to know why Alabama is so big? Because they're basically the de facto default pro team for Alabama and large portions of the state of Tennessee and uh, Mississippi and Georgia. It's, it's just the way things were here by market. So, Spencer, though, here's my question. And a largely uninterested fan base for a number of reasons. And I lived in Atlanta. I went to college there. I'd go to games in Fulton County Stadium. It was one of the weird areas where the no one sat in the first 20 rows because you couldn't see above the uh, guy standing on the sidelines. Very poor sightlines. Anyway, so the fan base doesn't care. And so you largely doesn't care. And so you would say, well, this is this correlates to the team not being great. And when you think about the fan bases that largely don't care, Places like San Diego or Houston's soft sports town. They haven't had great teams. But, you know, I don't know. Indianapolis would is a great fan base if the Colts aren't good. I wonder if you just can build a great team and, you know, make your money. And it's okay if people aren't as rabid in your town as they are in the uh, old mill towns or in the Northeast. Uh, is Are we tricking ourselves when we look at how blah the fan base is and seeing that that is a reflection in the mediocrity of the team? Yeah, I think that's a bit of a canard. I don't think that's anything like reality when you say, well, you know, if the fans cared more, they'd be good. Um, there's a there's a generations of New York Jets fans who would counter that argument, right? If we just hoped more, they'd be really great. Okay, like more relevant to the Atlanta experience, the South Carolina Gamecocks are over in Columbia. Look at them historically. They sell out when they go 0-11. Is that, is, is, is that doing a lot for them? Not really. Now, I think... There's actually a better argument to be on the college side because if you're invested as a fan base and you care, then that leads to donations, that leads to people feeling pressure, right? Whereas the NFL can kind of enjoy, uh, I think, a degree of freedom from actual fan sentiment because of TV contracts, right? Those TV contracts, you know, they're lucrative on the college side. They're ridiculous on the NFL side. So, you know, you can freeload for a long time as an NFL owner. You know, the Culver Houses in Tampa did that for years, right? Um, you know, I, I think, I don't know if freeloading is the right term for what the Raiders do. They're more the free jazz of ownership in terms of the NFL. But that's, you know, you can do that for, I think, longer than you can sometimes at other levels of the sport because the TV money's you know, it's still there. It's going to come. Those contracts have been signed, man. Well, and they've also you've also got a city by the uh, by the by the Antlers. They've just got a you know new stadium. I mean, this is there is goodwill in municipalities towards teams like these. You have to fuck up pretty badly to alienate the populace so much that you get driven out of town or are driven down to the point that the indifference overwhelms your ability to but manage the team. And I don't think that's the case in Atlanta. Is, wasn't the the population of Atlanta pretty pleased with its franchise? I saw videos of dancing in the yeah. airports. People generally are not happy in the airport, especially in recent weeks. Yeah, well, Hartsfield, there's a lot of delay time. You got to do something. <laughs> he is, I think people are pretty happy with it. And I think that has a lot to do with, you know, historically uh, what they've been. And also, this is a real likable team. Like, I, you know, we're talking bad about the Falcons here, but this was a team where uh, you had Matt Ryan, who's just, you know, Matt Ryan's just, man, he, he just, he's just quietly brilliant, just tries hard, not real, not real flashy. I always joke that he's the Panera of quarterbacks, you know, he's always there, always got a cookie, you know, waiting, got, got coffee <laughs> brewing. I mean, are you going to take a date to Panera? I hope not, but man, you know, it's just there's free Wi Fi when you need it. 
<laughs> I mean, he's the kind of guy where you go, man, do you have a Mophie? My phone's just like, I need to charge it. And he's got like, Wait, what do you have? I've got three different courts. Like that's Matt <laughs> Ryan, right? And that was, you know, I think what the franchise needed after the big years. But at the same time, he's been, I think, given all this, these compliments of guys who I think, you know, Julio Jones is Julio Jones. Like we all watched him make like, this is a very Atlanta thing, by the way, we watched him make the most ridiculous catch in the game last night and Edelman tops him, right? Like that's the story of the Falcons that they get a ridiculously, uh, uh, you know, athletic catch, this balletic sort of pass and catch over the sidelines where he gets both feet down. And then the Falcons mess that up and, and Edelman catches a ball that bounces off two guys and is an inch from the turf. That's, there's the Atlanta Falcons story right there. I so I think see, people, I, I, I push against these narratives, though. I think it's as possible or as likely that you know Matt Ryan turns into Tom Brady and Arthur Blank turns out to be a very continues to be a sensible owner who helps lead this franchise to a long epoch of stability. Um, you know, that's how, a, that's how a, is it possible? That's a real, that's a real logical yeah conclusion to come to here, and, and I would I would totally agree. Uh, were I not at any lack of explanation besides the mythical at this point, right, and the spiritual, I'm I'm past that. That would be a very logical thing to happen, right? Um, but Matt Ryan's the, been in the league for ten years. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not like the guy's like uh, twenty two. No, no, yeah. I mean, and that's and, and I agree. You know, you're like, oh man, that's there's no reason he can't become a stable, successful quarterback with a really great franchise that's extremely well-managed for the next 10 years. Here's what everyone knows is going to happen. They'll hire like Chip Kelly for offensive coordinator. <laughs> they'll, they'll implode next year. They'll go like, you know, six and 10. Uh, you know, there'll be grumblings. Uh, Julio Jones is, is too good for this world. And they'll get like turf toe for life and get hurt. Or, you know, one of their running backs, either Coleman or Freeman will, you know, get traded away in a mysterious deal. And it, that's the kind of thing that just tends to happen here. So, yeah, I agree with you. There's no reason why that couldn't happen. We're a little bit beyond reason in terms of the historical context of this franchise at this point. Yeah, I was just looking at the uh, some of the PSL prices. Uh, they've sold out on their $45,000 PSLs. Those are like the four good seats. But there are plenty of seats available. For $20,000 down, you could get entitled to a $365 ticket. Or for the bargain price consumer, $125 ticket. All you have to do is pony up $3,500 beforehand. And $50 down gets you in. Yeah, or you could just wait around the dome. That's yeah. what most people do. <laughs> yeah. Just wait around the dome just, for somebody to, to sell a ticket for when they're se- seven bucks. Yeah. <laughs> so the Atlanta sports fan now today is this. Does this loss kind of go into a narrative of you know self loathing and and hatred, or is it kind of forgotten about? And by this time, you know, next year will have uh, uh, moved on to other and, and better things. I guess I'm, I'm just curious if it's like, you know, there's a, there's, there's no Scott Rabb of uh, Atlanta fandom. Like, where is, where is the, like, operatic, you know, <laughs> self-hatred? Well, you know, you'd have to be – nobody's ever going to be angrier than, you know, like a white guy from Ohio, right? <laughs> no one. That's just what they are, you know? Like, I had, like, three or four of my mentions last night. And I'm like, oh, wow, look, there's an angry white guy from Ohio. Grr, I bet you're short and probably have hair loss. Like, that's whatever. You're, you're like a dime a dozen, right? Like, no one's ever going to be angrier than Ohio. No one's angry. Like, this state is not an angry state, right? <laughs> For all of the, like, sometimes hateful politics <laughs> that emerge. 
from the state of Georgia. It's not a real angry state. And, and uh, you know, Georgians and Atlanta Falcons fans and Atlanta sports fans, they already had a nice room reserved in the house called Atlanta sports, right? Atlanta professional sports it, it reserved in the corner of the house, right? I, I think if you have a place to lose this in a familiar narrative, you can just, you know, process it pretty easily, right? Like, oh, look, it's a car crash. Fortunately, we're a body shop, right? Atlanta, like Atlanta fans have the tow truck company's number memorized because they know this thing breaks down. So it's an easy thing to process. There's a lot going on, man. What? Weather's pretty warm. Masters <laughs> coming up in April. Braves, you know, catchers and you know, catchers and pitchers report soon, right? We can just get that on the way. Uh, Hawks, yeah, I can't wait for that first round exit. It's going to be real exciting. They'll take it to five or six games. And it's there's a lot going on, and the process moves forward. Hey, spring games. All kinds of college football spring games coming. So uh, I don't think it's going to be a sort of permanent stressor for Atlanta sports fans because they have the ability to deal with this, right? Or with anybody saying, oh, you're a bad sports town. Yeah, we've never heard that angry guy from Ohio. Never. (laughs) It's not like the most tired thing. It just goes, it's like, at this point, there's a protective oil over the ears. It just sheens right over it. Spencer Hall, thank you for sheening our ears, as always. He's the uh, editor-at-large of SB Nation. Continue to be large, my friend. Thank you. No other choice. Thanks. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student-athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls. And as uh, discussed, the Boston sports teams have 37 titles. Atlanta sports teams have won, but that's the major sports teams. Mm -hmm. And who are we to decide what's major? Mm -hmm. Let us now celebrate an Atlanta sports team that has double the titles of uh, the Atlanta so-called major sports teams. Do you know who I'm talking about, Stefan? Would it be the Atlanta Explosion? It would be. They were known as the Atlanta Ravens for a single season, but they're the Atlanta Explosion in our hearts. And they are a team in the Independent Women's Football League, and they have won two championships, although they no longer exist. The winning tradition in Atlanta sports is dead. It's dead. It died with the explosion in 2013. Mike Pasca, do you have an explosion for us? I do, but I want to add that the Atlanta Knights, the hockey team, won their IHL championship uh, the Turner Cup, so that that helps, Ted Turner. And then the Atlanta Knights, they played four years. They went to the semis, won a Turner Cup, made the playoffs twice. Then they became the the Quebec Rafels. And uh, the Rafels do not warrant a Wikipedia page in English, but there is one in French. No, they're there, and, under, uh, they're there under Atlanta Knights. French uh, for yeah, gust no, of wind. Have, they don't have their own. Oh, they don't have their own. Page. And their logo has an abominable (laughs) snowman looking like he's snowboarding on a hockey stick. And this is so weird. His body is fur covered until it gets to the feet. And then he's just barefoot. But like barefoot without fur, like bare human foot. All right. That's not my Raphael. (laughs) 
<laughs> Nor <laughs> is that your explosion. explosion. Yeah. Uh, I, I, let's go back to the horrific Bowling Green Massacre. So I, like so many, got the idea of, well, let's find the Bowling Green Falcons getting blown out in either football or basketball. And I found some tape of a... Uh, uh, 2005 game played it on the gist Boise State the final score it wasn't as close as the 48 to 20 score indicated two tack on touchdowns by Bowling Green this was a real Bowling Green massacre but the real massacre was clearly from the announcing booth Dave Barnett with play-by-play but here's Craig James trying to show his hip and hip-hop credentials wades in with just the worst attempt at seeming cool since I tried to rap on my show, only to be rescued by the sideline reporter. Let's hear that. What does uh, Snoop Dogg call that stuff? Uh, if, the, if the fly don't ride or what if you... Something like that. You I don't just know. lost me. Sorry. Oh, well, I don't know that either. But I'm out on the rap. If you ain't got no jizzle, you ain't going to gizzle or whatever he says. I am way out. Second down and nine. He's got some, Again, Brent Denton. Some, some bling bling on that facility over there. <laughs> Please, Anne-Marie, rescue me. <laughs> Speak English to me. What do you mean, Craig? If the ride is fly, then you must buy. There you go. Well, I'm more Lee Iacocca. <laughs> That's what it was. Well, I'm more Lee Iacocca. Thanks for bringing it up. Thanks for bringing it up, Craig James. He's so street. Craig James killed five rappers at SMU. Stefan, what is your explosion? All right, I got two things to discuss. They are related Sort of Morton Anderson was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Party time for kickers. He had 2,544 points in his career. All-time scoring leader in the NFL. He played in the league an insane 25 seasons. He retired at age 47. Both of those facts finally trumped the Hall of Fame's anti-kicker bias and made him just the second full-time kicker there after Jan Stenerud. Let's hope the floodgates open. Gary Anderson is second on the points list, 2,434. Adam Vinatieri is third, 23.78. He's not likely to catch Morton, but those Super Bowl winning kicks mean that he is a lock. I'd put in all the 2,000 points guys, Jason Hansen, John Carney, Matt Stover. It's kind of the 3,000 hits of kicking. My teammate Jason Nealham had 1,983 points plus a 63-yarder, put him in. Morton Anderson's field goal percentage was 79.7%. That makes him 51st on the career list. Going forward, I think the cutoff to get into the Hall of Fame for kickers should be 85%, 2,000 points, and something else. Record kick, Super Bowl win. You're not adjusting for era. Delightful personality. Well, that's I am adjusting for era. We got to move it up, 85%. Got to get better than 79. Jan Stenerud's percentage was like 60% or something. Longevity is going to be the key here. Um, it's going to be harder to match the uh, the earlier guys because all kickers are so much better. The bar for staying in the league is way higher now. Among the current kickers, Steven Guskowski, he's on his way 11 seasons, 14.57 on the points, 87% make rate. Sebastian Janikowski could get to 2,000. Mason Crosby could get to 2,000. Justin Tucker is five seasons and only. Uh, he's averaging 150 points per season, and he sings opera, so I like his chances. Okay, and so what I think is that each kicker should have an era by face mask. So Jan Stenerud Mm -hmm. was the single bar face mask, and Morton Anderson had a slightly wider double bar face mask, Mm -hmm. and Adam Venetieri, also a double bar, but bigger, covered more area of the face, so he could be the third one in. Mm -hmm. Who knows what the fourth era of the kicker face mask will be, Mike? 
Yeah. All right, part two. Back in September, you'll recall that I talked about the story of the story of Bjorn Nitmo, the Swedish-born kicker who played six games in the NFL. He was a thing on David Letterman, subject of a dramatic 7,500-word story in the Buffalo News about his life after football. The story described how Nitmo had abandoned his wife and children several years ago and was living under mysterious circumstances, dropping in and out of his family's life. The breathless, dramatic article made much of the fact that no one knew where Nitmo was, except it turned out that some filmmakers had found him and an ESPN crew had too. And finally, the Buffalo News and Nitmo's ex-wife tracked him down. After 27 paragraphs of exposition and dramatic setup, including unsubstantiated fears that Nitmo might physically attack her, they found him in a trailer park in Arizona where Nitmo happily agreed to sit down for a meal and talked calmly and rationally for two hours about his life. Nitmo did confirm that he suffers from symptoms related to traumatic brain injury, which was the focus of the first story. Headaches, ringing in his ears, memory loss. The chaos in my head is absolutely devastating, he said. Uh, He said he suffered eight concussions playing football, which was more than in the first story. He said he sees a neurologist and works installing TV systems and internet cable. He apologized for abandoning his family, but he blamed his mental and emotional difficulties. Journalistically, the second story doesn't make up for the flaws of the first piece, which had too much hearsay, too much unsubstantiated innuendo, too many damaging accusations about Nitmo's personality and behavior, and too little science, and also too little effort to find the guy. The new piece is also overlong and overwritten, and it too doesn't quote a doctor or otherwise try to verify Nitmo's claims about his health, but it is in keeping with the genre of profiles of football players and brain disease. I will uh, even overlook the distractingly obvious headline on the second story, which was Finding Nitmo. Josh, what's your explosion? So on last week's show, I promised to provide some possible titles for Stefan's Alternative Universe XFL book. Before we get to that, here are a couple of facts you should know about the book. Its foreword is written by Bob Costas. There are blurbs by Robert Lipsight and Jim Hacksaw Duggan. The book sold very poorly, and its failure inspired Nate Jackson to stick with football and not become a writer. The unsold copies were buried in a landfill in New Mexico, and there is a documentary directed by Stefan's daughter and produced by Jonathan Hawk and narrated by Lawrence Fishburne for some reason, in which an excavation team attempts to locate that garbage dump. And the documentary is really less about football than it's about one man's journey to his own personal extremes. All right. Now that that's <laughs> out of the way. So you couldn't get, you couldn't get Werner Herzog to uh, do that one? Well, that's the narrative version. This is the documentary. And the, the Herzog one is in 3D, which I'm looking forward to. So some titles. X marks the extreme lack of success. They called him Teabagger. A Tale of Hard Luck, Perseverance, and Placing One's Testicles on Another Person's Head. C is for Chuck Wagon. D is for Death Blow. Learn your ABCs, the XFL way. Cortez the Kicker. The story of the XFL, the league where a kicker named Jose was the MVP of the championship game, then became an Oregon State Trooper, then was forced to resign after pleading guilty to official misconduct. Good subtitle. (laughs) The subtitle really makes it, I think. This one comes from Mike Pesca, your friend. You know, Mike? No one gassed up the truck. How hope, hype, and poor attention to detail shaped the XFL. <laughs> I got. I also got a couple from Brian Curtis. 
some celebrity contributions. We made kickoffs even more dangerous. The legacy of the XFL. (laughs) Also from Brian, Back from the Dead, My Second Career in the XFL by Tommy Maddox, He Hate Me, and literally everyone that played in the XFL. How about Scramble for the Fall? Scramble for the Mall. (laughs) M-A-U-L. M-A-U-L. I also asked for some titles from our Facebook Mm -hmm. fans. Josh Drimmer suggests, We Were Stardust, We Were Maniacs, the XFL era. A Few Seconds of Manic from uh, Evan Burgos. And A Few Seconds of Relevance Mm -hmm. from John Denunzia. A Few Seconds of Maniacs would have been good, too. That's all we got. That's all we got? Do you have a winner? I have to choose from among those? I think my contribution would be those cheerleaders sure are something. The Matt (laughs) Fesgersian story. We'd love you. I mean, if you wanted to sell, what's wrong with a heart-shaped ass? You could do more wrong than that. Worse than that. (laughs) This is a uh, quote from the XFL documentary. To be clear. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Our intern is Adam Willis. Our producer is Patrick Fort. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtein. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>